considered for us as believers in Jesus Christ sort of the most amazing time of year because we are in the time of year where everything that we celebrate, everything that we live for, the faith that we proclaim hinges on these events surrounding the cross and the resurrection, surrounding what we call Easter. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to kind of camp out around that. I'm kind of interested to watch culturally now. There is a trend, and you've probably noticed it as well, that there are more and more movies coming out that seem to have a biblical or a faith-based theme. For instance, last night we had movie night here, and we watched War Room. How many of you were here last night? Hey, God bless you. How many of you have seen War Room? Okay, so the rest of you haven't. I have the video, and you should watch it. it I, I'll be honest. Whenever you talk to me, it kind of creeps me out a little bit that you haven't seen it yet. This is not hokey. I, you know, I thought I just have that kind of buy. I'll be honest. When I see him come out, I didn't go to the theater and watch it because sometimes I'm like, I, I feel bad. Because War Room was really good. Nick Clara, everybody needs a Nick Clara in their life. She was great at times. And then just the whole theme of it, talking about families and marriages, wonderful movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend getting it. I'm sure you can rent it from Redbox, but we have a copy at the church. You can have the kind of loan out at the bars if you'd like to watch it. Worthwhile. Really good stuff. Another one that's actually in theaters right now that's going to kind of form some of the underpinnings of what we'll do over the next couple of weeks is the movie called Risen. Has anybody here seen Risen? Curious. Okay, so you're ahead of me. I haven't seen this one yet. I've seen some clips of it, and I'm going to be able to show you some clips over the course of these next weeks as we talk about it. Um, Risen is a story set around the events of the resurrection, but it's told from the perspective not of the disciples or of the followers of Jesus, but rather of a, uh, almost a, a Roman, that's the word, Roman military guy who is given the assignment to find the body of Jesus that has gone missing from the tomb. And so he sets out looking for this great mystery. How can we silence these people who are following Jesus by producing the evidence that will ultimately shut them up? In fact, to kind of give you a feel for a little bit of it, we have a, a clip I'm going to show right now to give you a good sense of what kind of thing is happening in the movie. So whenever you guys are ready, I'll be here and So this is the story, and it unfolds how these uh, Roman soldiers are trying to find out what happened to the body of Jesus. Because after all, something had to happen. People that are crucified by Rome just don't step out of the grave. And so the movie unfolds around that. And so today I want to I use that as a backdrop, and over these next weeks do that same thing. As we look toward Easter, and as we think about the events around it, maybe one of the most well-known Bible verses, we sing some well-known hymns, we might as well jump in with a well-known Bible verse, right? John chapter 3, 
verse 16, one that I learned as a child, maybe you did if you grew up in church world as well. John 3.16 tells us this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I don't know if you heard in that clip the, the exchange between uh, the, the soldier and the disciple when he said, uh, what did you promise? Eternal life. And the soldier said, well, that's a much better recruiting tool than a sword. In a nutshell, all that we believe, that it begins with God's love. And it begins with a God who loves so much that He gives us something. And of all the things He could give us, He chose to give us the most valuable commodity He had, and that was His very own Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Word that became flesh. And in giving Him to us, He has made it possible that by placing our faith in Him, we could have promise that God has made. What an incredible offer that God has made. And it begins with the events that lead us to the cross. Those few hours that begin maybe Thursday night with Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with His disciples and culminate in what we call Good Friday, His crucifixion. Begin or were part of this process that, that really all of eternity all of history hinges on. And one of my favorite authors, and I'm sure many of you have read some of his things too, is Matt Cusato, who writes a very prolific author. One of, he's written several books around the cross. This one is called, No Wonder They Called Him the Savior. And in it, this is what he says. He says, The cross, it rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all sinners. Rulers all places. History has idolized it and despised it, has gold plated it and burned it, worn and cracked it. History has done everything to it but ignore it, because that's the one option the cross does not offer. No one can ignore it. You can't ignore a piece of lumber that suspends the greatest claim in history. Its bottom line is sobering. If the account is true, then history ends, period. If not, then history fails. That's why the cross is necessary. When you go to just about any Christian church, you will see, like you see here, the cross probably displayed somewhere. When we, as we did last week, observe the Lord's Supper, the broken bread and the juice, we remember that in that observance, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. The cross is that central unifying image and theme of all of our lives because we stand on this side of the cross. But when we backtrack to before the events of the cross and the resurrection, we find a much different reaction to it. We find disciples that in the face of it, just absolutely despise it. They don't know what to do in the face of these events. They don't know how to react to something that for them is the Roman oppressor asserting its authority. 
what do you do when the leader you followed for three years is arrested? Well, if you're Peter, you want to know what's happening, so you kind of follow along until you're called out and somebody recognizes you. And maybe suspended between admitting your allegiance to the one who's being tried behind closed doors or saving your own skin. No, I don't know him. No, I've never heard him. And then I'll spare you the language. We'll just say the Bible says he cursed. The third time, he was asked to stand trial. Those disciples who were with him in the garden at his arrest really just escaped from there. In fact, the only one that we see for sure going all the way to the cross we believe who is also the youngest, John. And while Jesus hung on the cross, he says to John and to his mother Mary, John, I'm going to die. And that's the third disciple. And just John, that was John's ticket. But other than that, these disciples are gone. They're hidden. They don't know what to do. This one they pinned all of their hopes on. change that happens to the disciples. The disciples that at the crucifixion and in those intervening days go into hiding. They they who are scared for their lives. They who are defeated. They who are certain there's no hope. Emerge a few days later. Different people. They emerge ready defy Rome. The same Rome that arrested and tried and crucified their Lord. Something obvious happened. And it begins with the cross. Now one of my favorite words in that selection from Matthew 486 is the word atrocious. That's a great word for great word for the resurrection. It's actually filthy filth. See, we live on this side of history. And for us, the story of the hero who dies and then somehow miraculously returns to save the day, how many movies are based on that scene? How many cultural references get to that? How many books do we read that's somewhere in there? I mentioned Harry Potter a few minutes ago. Isn't that somewhat in that thought? The, the evil wizard to destroy the helpless baby, surely dead, who emerges as the boy who lived. That was his nickname. See, we, from this perspective, that's normal. But from the disciples' perspective, that was absurd. From Rome's perspective, that was ridiculous. From the first century, from the people who lived through those events, the cross and the resurrection was absolutely insane. There's another absurd dimension, and it involves one of the key players in those few days. We 
the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. One of the places we read about her is in Luke chapter 19, verse 25. She's in a list of several people. Luke 19, 25, we're told these, these things. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. You would expect that. You've already probably read that. His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene has risen to some popularity lately. Over the last six or eight years, really, due to some novels and films that were out where she was, and the Prison of New Film, and it's gone back a long way, but she is actually the secret wife of Jesus, maybe the Da Vinci Code or some of the other things you, you've read. But she figures very prominently in these events. Now, we actually don't know a lot about her before these last chapters of the Gospel. She doesn't show up much. In fact, the, the main place we get to know her is in Luke chapter 8, I believe, where it says she was the one out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. How would you like that on your resume? Yes, I am the one who had seven demons. You know, not just one. Good times, right? Good times. That was her. In fact, now, now to be clear, there's been some confusion because a lot of people think of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, and they have that in mind. Uh, in fact, a lot of people put her together with the woman who came in and anointed Jesus' feet. But there are different people, and she's not the same. Actually, that comes from a, a sermon, I believe, from Pope Gregory several centuries ago. That's where those characters of the New Testament were conflated into one kind of person. But all we know about Mary, and, and by the way, this is pretty much enough, isn't it? That she was a woman who encountered Jesus and cast seven demons. Now, she shows up in that passage because she's traveling with Jesus and his disciples. Everywhere he goes, obviously he sends his disciples with him, but Mary Magdalene is one of those who follows along. She shows up here because at the end of his life, as he's hanging on the cross, she is near by. She wants to know what happened to this one who's lost him. And then a few chapters or verses later, she is among that small group of women who go on the first day of the week, Easter Sunday, to the tomb. Because in the hurry of pulling Jesus off the cross because the Jewish holiday was near, he wasn't properly prepared for burial. And so these women were going to go and take care of what needed to be done to anoint Jesus' body for burial. And you've heard the story, I guess, if you haven't, when they get to the tomb, the stone is rolled away, an angel meets them and says, He is not here, He is risen. Go tell His disciples and Peter. And they do that. They share this good news. Now, why is that excursion there? Well, one of the things that, that we forget from our point of view is because culture changes, because the view of people changes. In that day, women were not allowed to be witnesses in any sort of legal proceeding. The Bible is so absurd as to assert that the first witnesses to this historic event in history were these women. Think about that. I'm not going to say they didn't, but there is a bit of absurdism in all of this. Of all the things that could be said about Mary Magdalene, one of the things we might say is she's really the least likely. If you're going to pick 
women to be witnesses, you would think you would pick upstanding, well-thought-of, well-connected, powerful people. No, Mary Magdalene is in that short list, and her claim to fame is, oh yeah, I used to be possessed by seven demons. Don't do that now. Quite a remarkable story. She was the least on the way down the hall, 
and I'll usually poke my head out. Actually, I don't have to. They just come find me. And when they do that, they're kind of just like, hey, I'm kind of just sitting out this game point. She always has to say hi to me. And it's just the cutest thing. James comes in and waves and walks through the fish tank, and it's all good. And they're like, hey, come on, get in line. And so what I'll do is I'll go to the girl and say, good job, whoever's in line. There's usually nobody. Um, you imaginary child for standing in line and doing well? Way to go, thinking that that's going to make all the kids, like, get right in line. But the great thing is, even if they do or don't, they leave in, like, 30 seconds, and I'm back to teaching class. So uh, there you go. And we, we have this idea that, that God is like that up in the sky. He's praising our kids to find us. It's what we do. It's how we act. And, and the whole witness of Scripture is the opposite. It's just like that saying. It's not what we know. It is who we know. And we have the privilege of knowing God Himself through Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing that comes out of this cross and out of this resurrection. In fact, more than that, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 tells us that part of the who we know is that we are given this new standing with God. In Ephesians 2, 19, I think the verse is, is going to pop up here. It tells us this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, meaning to God. He's not distant. He's not other. He's not separate. No, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We, we used to sing a song in the church that, that I grew up in. I, I think a lot of churches did this. I don't think it's anything revolutionary new. We just like, kind of sing some old songs. But at the end of the service, it's like a thing. We'd all stand up, and we'd join hands across the aisle, and we'd sing the family of God, right? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. How many of you know that song? Want to sing it? sing it? Oh, you're going to stand up and hold hands and everything? You're just trying to stay awake, aren't you? Okay, stand up. Come on. We'll do this. There's like four people standing up. Now hold hands. If you want to reach across the aisles, that's good. Now, I don't have the words up on the screen, and I can't sing that good neither. But it goes something like this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the job. Yay. Hey, hey, listen, now I know not everybody here knows that song, and I know not everybody here grew up like I did in church world. So please don't feel like, you know, we're so, you, you felt like different or whatever, because the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of Jesus coming isn't to exclude. And sometimes in the name of Jesus and in the name of religion, we're very good about drawing some pretty stark lines about who's in and who's out, who's us and who's them. But the, the message of the gospel is whosoever will may come. Not because you know the words to the right songs or you, you, you've got the secret password or the secret handshake to get in. No, but because you know Jesus Christ himself. That's the, the right. It's not what you know. It's who you know. And 
when you know Jesus, when you place your faith in Him, you are part of what we call the family of God or the household of faith or the household of God. We are in this together. And in doing that, God says not only are we part of a household, but we each belong to one another. And we're put together uniquely. And, and the church, our church particularly, and the church universal is crafted by God and given individuals. That's you. With gifts and abilities for the sole purpose of serving one another and loving the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And when we receive the Son, then that's what we do. We follow in the footsteps of God. We become like Him. And we so love the world that we're willing to give of ourselves to, to see that they can come to know our God. And, and one of the great things that happens in that is we can move beyond guilt. Guilt is painful. And guilt, let's be honest, is sort of the currency sometimes of the church. Like the church in history has really dealt heavy on the currency of guilt. Because we figured out I say we because I'm part of it, have been, try not to be. We figure out guilt's a powerful motivator. We've been in churches, right, where they need help in the nursery. And my favorite technique, I don't speak this particularly, but it happens a lot in the church, they bring out two or three of the little kids, and the pastor in the middle says, Because they were just, the, you know, aren't they special? Wouldn't you love to, to spend some time with this sweet little And as if, if you wouldn't love, you're a bad Christian. You know, that's that kind of, and, and that's just one example. We do that. And, and the church has dealt in guilt that, that for some reason, more often than not, we've decided that's the most powerful motivator we have. When so much of Scripture says that guilt shouldn't be a part of our lives. Guilt is the prison of the past. And when Jesus comes and we place our faith in Him, one of the beauties of the cross and the resurrection is that we are forgiven completely and totally of all the sin that we've done. That it no longer has a hold on us. We've been set from it. Even as you saw in that clip, Mary Magdalene said, I'm free already from certainly the influence of those seven demons, but even from the fear of the Roman military officer standing in front of her. She's free from those things. And, and one of the reasons that happens is because of who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 tells us a little bit about this Jesus. And it tells us, we have a high priest who's right, the, the book of Hebrews written to those in Israel who understood the role of the priesthood and of the high priesthood. And particularly, Jesus becomes our high priest, our mediator between God and man, but particularly the kind of mediator who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he was tested in every way as we were, yet was without sin. He was tempted. He was tried. There were things that happened to him that he understands the struggle that temptation is for you and I. Yet he 
he overcame it all. And so we place our faith in him, our great high priest in which we're given. And it goes on and tells us this. Because we have that kind of high priest in verse 16, it says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that there we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Because of who Jesus is, because he is that great high priest, we can come before the very throne of heaven and earth. God himself. And notice, there's no condemnation in that verse. There's no guilt in that verse. Rather, we receive mercy. Mercy is when you have done something wrong that deserves punishment, and the judge or the authority decides not to enact that punishment on you. They've been merciful to you. You deserve that speeding ticket. Amen? You came to a rolling stop, whatever it was. And for whatever reason, the officer was merciful and let you off with just a warning. Mercy. We receive that from God. We are guilty before the judge, the one who sits on the throne of heaven and earth, the throne, notice, of grace. That's the the characterization of that throne. Not the throne of judgment in this verse. Not the throne of condemnation. The throne of grace is where he can give us mercy. And then we can find grace. Not only are we not given what we truly deserve, mercy is what that is, we're given things we don't deserve. That's the other side of the coin. That's the beauty of grace. Grace is not only do I get a free pass, do I get forgiveness, do I not have to live under that guilt, I'm given this reality of a relationship with God, of an eternal home in heaven, of abundant life here and now. Anybody ever play with an Echo Sketch? You know what those are? Now, my challenge as a kid when I got that, I don't know why this was, I would spend hours
that there's no guilt, there's no condemnation, that you can be completely forgiven, that God forget, forgives and forgets, as we say, that He shakes the etch sketch, that He throws your sin as far as the east is from the west, that He throws it to the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean. All those things the Bible says, that message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. Because, you know, we are told it's not who we know, it's what we know. And religion says it's what you do, it's your behavior. And so you're telling me I've made all these mistakes, I've got to do something about that. I have to somehow make up for it. I have to make sure the scale weighs heavier on the good things I did than the bad. No, to those who follow that philosophy, the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's a reminder that this great God, who could, should He choose, and would be right in doing it, could send His judgment on us in this building today for what I've done. I deserve the wrath of God on my life. absurdity and the foolishness of this message becomes life-changing. I read a story, true story, it's not a Christian story, it's a very different from that, but nonetheless, true story about a young couple who was on their honeymoon. And like most young couples, on their, their wedding night, had booked the bridal suite at a resort in a different town, and into town and got to the hotel layered and checked in and went up to their room and walked in and just a little bit surprised. As they walked in the room, it was beautifully appointed, just like some of the pictures they'd seen on the website and, and all, but they didn't see a book. In fact, it was just a couch. Oh, I mean, like, that's where you get a bed and bridal suite. And, well, after a little investigation, they found out, oh, the couch pulls out and makes a bed which is everybody's favorite way to put a bed. Well, you know, trying to make the best of a seemingly bad situation, they pulled out the couch and, and laid down and tried to sleep, and it was a horrible nightmare. It was awful. It was uncomfortable, just like every couch you probably ever lie on, laid on, or whatever that regular is, just like everyone. And, and, you know, it was their wedding night. It was one of those nights that was supposed to be special, and they were trying to make the most of it the next morning because they didn't sleep well and because it had been kind of all their expectations of this moment dashed. The husband decided he was going to have to do something, so he went down to the front desk and just tried to get his feet on the foot. Well, um, how was your stay? You know, they always ask the honeymoon, well, your stay. And he said, in fact, this is mine. We booked the bridal suite. It was kind of what our wedding night, we thought it was going to be so much more, but we had this horrible, horrible, not yet a horrible night. What in the world? How could you charge us what you charged us for that room? The manager, the clerk, or whoever it was, was a little taken back, said, what do you mean? I did this bed. It's my size bed. We actually delivered flowers and champagne and chocolates to your room. I said, well, you must have given us the wrong room. I said, well, wait a minute. I said, 
I will go with you. Let me let me see this room. If, if it is, you'll, you'll refund your money. So I walk in the room, and it's like, you know, bride with three cars. Yeah, this is the bridal suite. And they open the open. There's the couch, all made out, all messed up with the bed. And I said, see, sir, this is what you paid for. He said, did you open that room? You mean the closet? Okay, that's not the closet. That's the door to the bedroom. And they open the door. this that we've been talking about is our available through Jesus. It is our inheritance. It is our gift from God. Forgiveness and grace and mercy. If we're so content to sleep on a lumpy, guilt-ridden, pull-out couch of a life, rather than just opening the door to all that God has. This is what I've done for you. If you would just accept me, if you would just receive it, here is the gift. The gift of God, Romans 6, 23, is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And we have that kind of invitation to always get accept. Just to anyone who wants to receive that gift of God, that gift of grace and mercy and salvation. I want to invite our musicians now. 
like you in these next moments to consider what God has done for you on the cross and that resurrection and the offer that He makes to you. Not for the new thing, not to behave better, not to wallow in the guilt of your past, but rather to receive His before the very throne of grace, the throne of heaven and earth, and there receive the mercy of God and find grace in your life. Maybe that is your time to And I'd like you to stand. If you would like to know that great grace of God, I would love the opportunity to talk to you. I pray that you can have this day knowing Christ as Savior. As we sing, you just step up.